ACS Express, the ACEC Kansas podcast series. I'm Scott Heidner. I'm the executive director for ACEC Kansas, and we are honored today to have as our guest State Attorney General Derek Schmidt. General, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Scott. Good to be here. Yeah, we've been looking forward to this for a while. So we'll start off. Let's let the listeners get to know you. They've probably, you know, seen the general information out there, no pun intended, bad choice of words, <laughs> uh, during campaigns and such. Uh, but we'll peel the curtain back a little on, on the man behind the office. So uh, native of southeast Kansas. Independence, absolutely. Born and raised? Born and raised. All right, very good. All Still th- call Independence home. That's awesome. Yeah, I don't commute from there every day, but we do have the house there. Right. Uh, I should know this as a proud Kansan, but how big is Independence? Yeah, we're just a little under 10,000 people now. Yeah, very yeah. good. A little, little smaller than we were when I was growing up. So yeah. Like a lot of rural areas, populations trending down, but not, not rapidly. Yeah, very good. Uh, we'll see how much time we have today. We might later dive in. I know topic near and dear to your heart is the uh, southeast Kansas impact on Kansas history and public policy and all True. that leadership that's come from down there and of course the money was all down there once upon a time has a rich history the region does yeah in many senses of the word uh well all the way through high school and independence uh for our listeners that don't know the general has a almost un- unhealthy addiction to good education uh, he's gone farther than most went to ku journalism degree first rock chalk absolutely rock chalk for sure that's uh uh, one of the litmus tests you almost have to make to be on the podcast is... That's all right. It's a it's a precondition for working in the Attorney General's <laughs> office. Although I think we may have some employees that might have fibbed. might have fibbed. You know, that actually speaks to qualifications-based selection, which we'll get to later. <laughs> but there's a great shining example of it right there. Now, journalism at KU, uh, but did or didn't think at that time journalism might actually be the field you would choose. Yeah, you know, journalism was not a long-term, uh, wasn't something I'd sought for a long time, and, and I didn't stay in it that long, but it was a terrific stop along the way. I went to KU to go to the business school and uh, spent a year at our community college in Independence and then transferred up as a sophomore into the business school. I was planning to, to do that, and then I took statistics, uh, Business 368, <laughs> uh, Larry Shearer, and I quickly realized that was, that was not my future, uh, maybe not even past the final exam, and so... Uh, I went looking and discovered that journalism required no math, uh, <laughs> and uh, and it was much more my fit. So, and it was a great fit. It was Ma- a great fit. Many a prospective business future has been left on the ash heap of statistics. I think not? that's probably true. Yes, <laughs> I think that's probably true. But when you got into journalism, did you think um, for a nanosecond in there that that might be the career? You know, maybe for a while. I enjoyed uh, the J School and uh did that for, I guess, three years-ish, wound up as editor of the student paper, which was a terrific experience. Um, you know, at the time, the Kansans, Daily Kansan circulation was, I forget, 17, 18,000, something like that. Anyway, it was like the sixth largest daily newspaper in the state. Wow. Which, um, you know, back then was saying something because the print news industry was still more robust then than it is today. And uh, did a couple of internships along the way. I went to Gary, Indiana and worked at the Post-Tribune for a summer. Went down to Phoenix and worked at the old Phoenix Gazette, which was the PM paper. It folded eventually, and the Arizona Republic uh, did that uh, as well. So, you know, they were very, very good experiences. 
Um, even did a very brief internship, I think a, a week long over a Christmas break at the Kansas City Star. I saw some clips with my byline. No kidding. From the Star in some scrapbook somewhere. So, huh. yeah. So, and I've never reminded the Star of that. <laughs> when, the, when the coverage <laughs> might not be the best these days, that's, that's okay. I was going to say, that right. they've probably not always shown the, uh, uh, the, the softer touch and respect that you thought might accompany being a former employee of the Star, I'm sure. Well, you know, the benefits end at the end of employment, <laughs> I suppose, but that's all right. That's all right. Well, this is a, a sidebar to the point of the podcast, but a thing about a journalism degree, um, you hear this in all walks of life. It's true of my company, and our ACC Kansas members say it too. One of the skill sets that is hardest to find these days, you cannot find people that are good writers. Yeah. You know, that's true. One of the skill sets we often like here at the AG's office uh, is, you know, you give me somebody who can write well and can communicate, and we can teach them the substance. Yep. It, sometimes the reverse doesn't work. Mm -hmm. uh, you can be the smartest, uh, most knowledgeable person in the world if you can't convey it in an effective manner. It's much harder to do an effective job, and, and that's true in so many professions. And so, you know, we've been fortunate. We have quite a few, I say quite a few, we have a number of people here at the AG's office who are, you know, have journalism backgrounds or other writing backgrounds, and that's probably not terribly surprising for exactly the reason you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, our engineering members talk all the time about the need for strong writing, and particularly so often they are trying to communicate to lay people about technical design issues and being able to not only write well, but write in a way that conveys technical thoughts in a simpler form, more digestible. It's a real skill set. It is. Uh, well, after that journalism degree, went on law school at Georgetown. Yeah, I did. Uh, actually, the next step uh, was my master's and then Georgetown, and that's only uh -huh. relevant because it, it goes to the choice of school. I had actually applied to the KU Law School mm -hmm. and was going to go there right out of the journalism school. I was admitted and was ready to go. And... Uh, um, I got uh, an opportunity to uh, go out and do a, an internship in Washington, uh, which I did. And while doing that, it was a short-term thing, but while doing that, um, got an opportunity to go abroad and work on a, a master's degree in the United Kingdom. So I did those things in lieu of going to the KU Law School. And by the time it was law school time again, um, the geography had me at Georgetown instead of in Lawrence. Yeah, very yeah, cool. Yeah. Uh, first time in Great Britain when you went over there for school? Yeah, it was, uh, uh, I'd gone once before for a summer program after my first year at KU, just a, I think a six-week thing. Uh, I was in Cambridge for that. Uh, really, really neat experience. Uh, we lived in the old, we were at Gonville and Keys College, you know, the University of Cambridge made up of numerous colleges and, and uh, got to stay in this room in this tower. I can't remember the name of the tower, but you know, you'd walk up these worn stone steps that people have been walking, spiral steps that people have been walking up since 1300 and whatever. Uh, just a really neat experience. So I did that briefly, came back, finished at KU, and then went back over uh, to a different college in the Midlands and uh, did the master's there. Master's in international relations? International politics was the title. Uh, it's what's on the diploma. The, uh, my focus was uh, specifically on uh, diplomacy and international organizations. So I wrote my master's thesis on uh, the structure of the UN Security Council. Uh, some of the, some of the, of course, remember this is all pre-Gulf War. So I mean, right. this is this is before um, things sort of changed fundamentally in the uh, uh, world of international relations and international organizations. So. Um, I spent a lot of time learning things that quickly were superseded, but they were interesting nonetheless. Yeah, no doubt. Topic that's 
at least as relevant today as it was then. I think that's probably true. Yeah. I think it's probably true. Uh, and the question all our readers are going to want to know, uh, the whole teeth thing over in England, is that legit? The like teeth thing? The teeth. The teeth thing. Yeah, you, you're looking puzzled. He, you, are a, you are a better human being than the rest of us. You haven't even digested these negative stereotypes. No, it's the... I know nothing about what you're talking <laughs> about. I have no idea. I have no idea. If you've, if you've seen the uh, intellectually stimulating Austin Powers movies, yeah. they... They reference the bad teeth phenomenon in England. I studied diplomacy, and I love my British friends. <laughs> <laughs> this, sir, is why you've had a successful uh, career in elected in elected office. <laughs> that is awesome. Too funny. Well, that's the hardest question you'll get all day, so you should be in good shape. Uh, so, graduate from Georgetown, um, and I may not have the chronology of all of these right, but impressive resume and, and just fascinating resume even before you ran for office I may be missing some but worked for Bill Graves I believe Nancy Kassebaum uh, Chuck Hagel who went on to be a cabinet right. secretary right uh, and I'm th- there's a couple others I know I'm missing you were an assistant AG for a time I was that's right for Carla Stovall yeah my first uh, my first I guess government type job was an internship for an Iowa congressman named Tom Talkey. He used to represent the northeast part of the state, the Quad Cities, and uh, I got hooked up with him through a journalism internship program when I was hmm. at KU. I didn't have any tie to him. It was one of these programs that was designed to take uh, journalists who thought they wanted to cover public affairs and place them in a congressional office for a semester to kind of give them that experience. And they placed me with this guy I'd never heard of and. He was terrific, um, had a good experience with him, came back, finished at KU, and then um, got my real job, if you will, on the government side, the public side, uh, with Nancy Kassebaum. Uh, it's why I wound up going to D.C., and uh, when I came back from England, I went back to her staff on a more full-time basis. And like I said, that's why I wound up going to Georgetown. I, I had been admitted to KU Law, and I had intended to go to KU Law, but I couldn't really commute from D.C. to <laughs> Green Hall uh, every day for class. And so I needed a law school program in D.C. And Georgetown had a great night program. So that's what I did. I, I went to school at night uh, for my law degree while I worked for Nancy. That was a, about a five-year, four years at school. But I think I worked for her about five, almost six years. Mm-hmm. And then Hagel, uh, have to ask you, Chuck Hagel, for our listeners that don't know Nebraska, right? Right. Uh, so, you know, I... When, when Senator Kassebaum retired after the 96 election, she didn't seek re-election, and, and I graduated from law school that year and took the Kansas bar and was going to come back and um, ultimately decided it just wasn't quite time to come back in part because Jennifer, who we weren't married at the time, but she was in D.C., and she didn't really want to come back, and I think I'll stick around in D.C. for a while. Good choice. Which was a good choice. Yeah. Um, the only the only problem was that I needed a job because I had you know I had to pay rent, <laughs> and um, uh, so it's like November. Literally, it was November of '96, and I've just decided I'm not coming home right now, and my job's going away the first week in January. And what the heck am I going to do? And uh, I picked up a copy of the National Journal, that magazine, and read these little mini profiles of all the new senators that had just been elected that first week in November. And read this profile of a guy named Chuck Hagel. I'd never heard of him. Hadn't followed his campaign at all. But a really fascinating profile. I mean, here's a guy. He'd never run for public office before. He'd been a staff guy briefly. Hadn't run for public office. 
came from a not poor but not a wealthy family and then you know was a wealthy man by the time I'm reading about him he started a telecom company and sold it been an international investment banker he was a Vietnam veteran combat veteran he was an enlisted guy never an officer enlisted guy uh, had two purple hearts uh, one of which he got for pulling his brother out of an APC that was burning in biological Vietnam. brother biological brother yep. oh my. they served together back in those days and yeah. they were in the same unit uh, saved him. His brother brother lived. Wow. Uh, and you know Chuck still had shrapnel in his uh, in his body. Still does to this day from that experience. And you know so he decides he's going to run for the U.S. Senate. And uh, he he comes out of nowhere. He defeats the sitting Attorney General of Nebraska in the Republican primary, which we don't normally favor, by the way. The I do not recommend that. Right. Except in Nebraska back then. <laughs> and. Uh, and then he beat the sitting governor of Nebraska in the general election. Holy cow! He beat Don Stenberg in the primary, and uh, then he beat Ben Nelson in the uh, in the general, and became the first Republican elected to the U.S. Senate from Nebraska in like twenty six, twenty seven years. Wow! Um, which was relevant here because you know he's brand new. I'm really impressed with the guy's resume. Um, there are no young Nebraska Republicans who have ever worked in a Senate office because 26 years before, you know, those folks have moved on. And so I sent a cold resume in and, and uh, got a call the next day to interview. And, it, you know, in hindsight, it makes good sense. At the time, it seemed like a bolt of lightning. But, you know, he just wanted somebody that kind of understood the Midwest, Kansas, mm -hmm. Nebraska, uh, was level-headed. And I, I guess I left the impression on him and understood at least something about how the U.S. Senate worked because he had all these enthusiastic young kids from Nebraska that were ready to go set the world on fire but had no idea what the job of being in the U.S. Senate actually required. So we hit it off and they hired me and I worked for him for two years. I was his mm -hmm. first uh, legislative director. He served 12 in the Senate. I was there with him the first two of those 12. And, uh, you know, he's a great guy. He's... Uh, he and Nancy are, in some ways, very, very similar. They're both very thoughtful people. They're information-driven in their decision-making. They have very stiff backbones once they think they've made up their mind. They're not closed-mind. Mm -hmm. They can change their mind, but they are determined once their mind is made up. But their tone of execution is very different. You know, Nancy, Senator Kassebaum, if she was disappointed in you, it was often, oh, Derek, I, I'm not sure you should have done that. <laughs> And, you know, you just felt terrible. It was it was just the worst thing in the world. Right. Um, you know, I think I still have scarring on my eardrums from Hegel yelling at me uh, <laughs> at a high decibel <laughs> with words I can't repeat here. You know, she was proud of being a grandmother. That's how she would describe herself. And he was proud of having been an infantry sergeant. That's how he would describe himself. And so, you know, it was good to learn both. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, I know from prior conversations, you just have the highest admiration for senator at the time hagel mm. um but did you have a sense there i mean it was the very beginning of his electoral career did you have a sense of you know this guy has you know he ended up being a cabinet member but if not a cabinet member you know this is a rising star i think someday will be well yes i mean certainly he was ambitious there's no mm -hmm. question there's nothing wrong with that uh when i worked for him right at the first i would characterize him as very much a loyalist i mean he was he was, he was a Republican. He was proud to be a Republican. That was defining. He was uh, engaged with the Senate Republican leadership team. He wanted to be a loyal soldier. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. Um, about the time I was leaving, uh, and even, 
even after that, because I left before 9-11. Uh, but after 9-11, I stayed in touch with him. And, uh, you know, I think something changed in his world. And, and, in fact, he said this to me at one point. I'm not speaking out of turn. He said this publicly. But, um, he, you know, he, he served in Vietnam as a low-level grunt, as he would say. He saw a lot of people die. And he thought there were people in Washington that had made terrible mistakes that were being paid for in the blood of people in the field halfway around the world. And he, he felt some of that was true in parts of the U.S. response after 9-11. Not all of it by any means, but there were decisions made regarding the, the invasion of Iraq and how some of that was handled that he just fundamentally disagreed with. Um, not because he would have been unwilling to do those things, but because he doubted the premise on which the decision was made. And whether he was right or wrong about that, uh, you know, I've heard him say many times he felt an obligation because he'd been in the field when mistakes were made in Washington that killed young Americans. He felt an obligation as a U.S. senator to assert his, his thoughts on that subject, um, and he did. And so, you know, when I was with him early, he was very much a party-line loyalist. I think by the end of his 12 years in the Senate, he had developed a reputation as a much more uh, independent-minded individual. Obviously, had bucked uh, Secretary Rumsfeld, mm -hmm. uh, Vice President Cheney, um, uh, others in the administration. Ultimately wound up being Secretary of Defense for Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. He's still a Republican, but uh, so, you know, I think he evolved substantially. So yes, I thought he was going places. Uh, when I worked for him, I, I would never have predicted where he went in the way that we had gotten there. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, one more thing, and then we're going to move on to your history in public service, as an elected official at least. From previous conversations, you shared a quote with me one time from Nancy Kassebaum that I thought was, you said it was one of the more impactful things you heard from your bosses in those formative years. I thought it was fantastic, and I have shared it with other elected officials, particularly young ones, when they start their career and they're full of fire and, and you know, have huge plans. And, you know, you as you develop friendships with those folks, oftentimes you temper them that this may not may or may not be a permanent vocation as time moves on. Maybe it will be, but you said that Nancy Kassebaum said to you once, and, and this isn't going to evolve into a question, it's just really an observation yeah. about a past comment of yours, that she said you always have to be comfortably able ready to go, to go home. home. Absolutely. Able to go home. Yeah, she did. And, I, you and know, comfortably is the yeah. key. I don't that. think she intended that to be, you know, a comment to impart great wisdom. It was a comment she made in a conversation at one point. Um, but it stuck with me all these years. And I, I think that's, you know, worry sometimes, worry is the wrong word, but I think maybe sometimes... You know, you, we don't have to win at all costs. There's mm -hmm. going to be life tomorrow if I lose an election. I don't want to lose, don't get me wrong. Sure. Uh, you know, I'm running to win, but at the end of the day, if, if, if you lose an election, this is my this is my job, my public service, but it's not my life. Yeah. And I've got to be able to comfortably go home. Yeah, and you and I have both seen people over the years. There are people that have been voted out or left or whatever and have just transitioned with tremendous grace and almost never looked back unless called upon to help. And, you know, then there are others that it's it's clear there was too much investment. You know, there wasn't enough else to create that place to fall back comfortably to. So, uh, well, let's move on and talk briefly about your career on the elected side. Um, 
started off running for Senate District 15, representing the great folks of Southeast Kansas. Absolutely. That was uh, in the year 2000. I had, Jennifer and I had moved home right at the end of 98. I spent, we lived in Topeka initially, and uh, I spent the year of 1999 at the Attorney General's office working for Carla Stovall. Jennifer worked over in the State House. And then uh, in the spring of 2000, uh, Bill Graves called, he was governor then, and they needed some temporary legal help and asked if I'd do that. I said, sure. So I went to the governor's office in, I think it was January of 2000, give or take a month. might have been December of 99. And, uh, and I stayed there through that legislative session in 2000. And then about May, my hometown senator, Tim Emmert, mm -hmm. uh, announced he wasn't going to run for re-election. And Tim's an old friend of our family. And he mentioned that to me. I said, well, I think I might run. So... We went home and filed and jumped right into that primary. Yeah, and won your first primary. Yes, uh, it was a six-county district back then. It grew to nine by the end, but it was six counties in 2000. Uh, I carried four of the six counties. I carried the four more populous and lost the two more lightly populated counties and uh, won that race. Uh, I believe that general I won 58 to 42, if I remember correctly. Yeah. That's a good start. Not everybody does that well the first time. Yeah. Well, we had a lot of good help and support. A lot of it. Yeah. Moved on to a role as a Senate Majority Leader, which for our listeners out there, you, amongst other things, set the calendar and, and heard the cats. Um, had that job for yeah, I did that years? job six years. I served one term in the Senate. I was a committee chair, but I wasn't in the elected leadership. And then I got reelected in 04. And that same year, in December of 04, the re-election re was in November. Then in December we had leadership elections, and I ran for majority leader and won, and uh, and then got to do that job the entire second term, and for two years into the third term before I resigned the seat to become attorney general. So, boy, as a I'm sure you hear this all the time, but as an outsider, I have to tell you, majority leader looks. We were glad to have you there, but man, that looks like a thankless job. Uh, that is a lot of personality management. Well, that's the nature of a legislative body. Yeah. You know, that's the nature of a legislative body, uh, always very independent people with different points of view, all of whom were independently elected. Um, but, you know, majority leader was a great job. It, like any job, it had its moments, but uh, it was a great job, a very good group of people. Obviously, Kansas, a majority Republican state, and the legislature overwhelmingly Republican. Back then, we had I think, 31 or maybe 32 Republicans by the time we got done. We actually grew the numbers on our watch. I can't remember if it was... 30 to 31 or 31 to 32. But, um, uh, you know, it was a pretty diverse caucus. Yeah. And uh, and during that period, we had a Democrat governor. Uh, Kathleen Sebelius was uh, the governor, and then Mark Parkinson. And so, you know, on the one hand, you need to keep your diverse caucus happy because mm -hmm. uh, they're the ones that brung you. They hired you. They elected you. But on the other hand, you are part of the leadership team that has to actually govern. Yeah, pass stuff. If things melt down and you don't have a state budget, that's on you as much as it is on a governor. And so, it's uh, you know it was a it was a great time. It's a tough job. Uh, what's the old army re recruiting ad? The toughest job you'll ever love. I think that's probably that true. Yeah. I think that's probably true. Uh, well, what uh, what's different between showing up for work every day as a Senate Majority Leader and now st uh, statewide office holder as Attorney General? You know, one thing uh, not to be simpleton about it but this is a full-time gig and so it allows you to focus full-time on it um, 
One of the things about the legislature that is great but also a challenge is that uh, Kansas is a part-time legislative state, and that's true if you're a freshman member of the House or if you're a senior leader in the Senate. It can be a full-time job at the end of the day, especially if you're in the leadership. It, to do it right, it takes your time, but yeah. it, it's designed to be part-time. Uh, it's certainly not designed to pay as a full-time job. And, uh, you know, if you're trying to balance family and a private sector job that pays the bills and what other obli other obligations you have and leadership, it, it can be a juggle. Here, as Attorney General, I mean, you've got dynamics, of course, but at the end of the day, this is my job. And uh, and that's that, that marriage of those two things is a, a, a big positive from the inside. So, uh, Quick question, just first thoughts. Um, two or three political mentors outside of the people for whom you directly worked. I mean, we've talked about the Hegels and the Kassebaums and uh, Graves and such, um, but a couple people that, it, while they weren't your direct boss, had a profound impact on you. You know, one, uh, I mentioned his name a while ago, but I, he was never my, my boss in a political sense, was uh, Tim Emmert. Uh, Tim was a family friend I've known. Yeah, he was literally sat up with my dad the night I was born. He and my parents were, were friends I never way knew back. That. Yep. And uh, uh, they lived next door to us for quite a while. He has a daughter a year older than me and two that are, I think, two years younger than me. So, I mean, you know, kids all grew up together. And then I worked at his law firm uh, for a period of time when I was in the uh, in the Senate and had to have that private job. And, you know, Tim's just been a, a terrific mentor to me over the years and as a way of sort of keeping things in a grounded perspective, which mm -hmm. is which is a great positive. So, you know, he certainly would be, uh, he certainly would be one. Um, I have to think a little bit about other, I've had the great privilege of having some very good mentors, but most of them were folks that I, I worked for. Nancy was terrific uh, in that regard. Uh, Bill Graves has been terrific. I keep in touch with him to this day. He's always full of advice, much of it good. <laughs> <laughs> He probably trusts you to separate the wheat from the chaff and the and the total pool of advice he offers. Well, I suppose that's the job, isn't it? Right. I suppose that's the job. Yeah. Uh, so they've certainly been uh, they've certainly been good. <laughs> so very good. Well, one last um, anecdote to share before we shift. I want to talk about a few things that are specific to our good ACEC members that are listening. Um, but I think of all of the history that we've gone through of your career and everything maybe the coolest thing in your role as attorney general you've had an opportunity uh, to present before the the supreme court not just of kansas but the united states supreme court yeah yeah that's true uh you know one of the great things about the ag's job if you're a lawyer it, it is one of the few jobs especially if you're outside of washington where most of the supreme court bar practices it's one of the few jobs that allows you to have a pretty robust u.s supreme court practice and we do we we practice on paper in front of that court regularly. Um, and occasionally you get to participate in an oral argument. Uh, I've argued two cases since I've served as Attorney General. Uh, and we're 2-0 and o right now, so I probably ought to quit while I'm ahead uh, <laughs> on those two. They were, both, uh, they were both Kansas homicide cases, and there were constitutional questions uh, raised in both of them. Um, one was uh, the murder of a sheriff in Greenwood County, um, fellow named Matt Samuels, uh, killed by a guy named Scott Cheever. And then the other was a consolidated case of, of two different, actually three different cases that court put together that raised the same issue. 
One was a, a homicide out of a Great Bend. Uh, Sidney Gleason was the defendant, and the other was the Carr Brothers case um, yeah. out of Wichita. And there was a common constitutional question about the Eighth Amendment that arose, and we got to argue that. So, uh, you know, it's a tremendous experience. Uh, the, the U.S. Supreme Court is a remarkable institution. Um, I was glad I got to argue those while Justice Scalia was still alive. That's a memorable experience. And I bet. He's, uh, he's one of a kind. So, I just assume that, you know, whether it's the, the jitters or adrenaline or whatever it is, it just has to be off the chart the first time you stand up in front of the United States Supreme Court. Yeah. You know, one of the things that struck me, there are a lot of things that are highbrow, but one of the lowbrow things that struck me that, <laughs> you know, you talk about the jitters, you're darn close to the bench. The, the the distance like physically physically the distance the distance from the uh, the presentation podium to the chief justice is just not very far <laughs> and um, it it looks a lot farther in the artist renditions or on TV when they have it recreated but you know you're standing seven feet from John Roberts and it's uh, so it's little things like that that. Yeah. Uh, that, that'll get you, but it, it obviously a tremendous experience, and um, like I say, good outcome for Kansas in both of those cases. So yeah. we're pleased with that. That's awesome. Well, great for Kansas, but also, gosh, what a what an incredible thrill I would think to be there. It was good. You know, I haven't argued. I haven't done a lot of courtroom work since I've been Attorney General. Uh, that was a, com- a conscious decision. Bob Steffen said to me one time. He said, "You know, you'll have to decide how much time you want to spend in a courtroom." But he said, "Derek, this was my experience." said I was attorney general 16 years longer than anybody else in history, and I'd been a state district judge before that, so I was very comfortable in a courtroom. And I never once in 16 years appeared in a district courtroom in the state of Kansas. Wow. said, I argued a couple of appellate cases, but that was it. And he said, here's why. He said, my philosophy was if you're doing your job, you're hiring a lot of good people that do your courtroom work, but only one person can be the attorney general. And if you run out of things that only the attorney general can do, then go argue some court cases but I don't think you're going to. And that's been, I've adopted that philosophy. I think it's a good one. But because of that, where I was going with this, because of that, um, when I argued that first uh, Supreme Court case, it was in 2013. I'd been in office since 2011, hadn't done any district court work. So it was the first time I appeared to argue a case in court since the last case I argued in the Independence City Court. <laughs> That's about the same. There. Yeah, back <laughs> when I was, our firm was city attorney, city prosecutor before I was AG. So I, uh, after that argument, I wrote a note to the fellow who's been our longtime city judge back in Independence and said, uh, you know, dear Bill, just wanted you to know that the argument went well. We actually won. And um, so obviously, you, you know, you prepared me well. Thank you very much. <laughs> P.S. You you remind me a lot of Antonin Scalia, and uh, he told me he's kept the notes. So. I bet so. Yeah, that's awesome. Somebody told me that I reminded them of uh, Scalia intellectually. I'd I'd have that thing framed, even if it was in jest. That's awesome. It was fun. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about some things that are specific to our good ACC Kansas listeners. Uh, you certainly are no stranger to who and what ACC Kansas is, representing the private sector job-creating consultants here in Kansas. Amen. uh, Bring their design services in. Um, A lot of our listeners may not know uh, that there's really any connection between the Attorney General's office and those doing private sector design work, specifically their companies. Uh, But obviously there are 
for our listeners out there, what would be a couple of connections, even if they're not daily connections, uh, that right. between your office and the work done here and our members? Well, the, you know, there are a few specific things that, uh, like you say, may not be on the radar. Uh, we have a number of uh, state agencies, boards, and commissions that we're general counsel for. Uh, technical professions is one of those, and mm -hmm. so we provide routine legal services uh, to the board in its licensing role, and that, I think, is a good connection. True with some other um, boards as well that might have some overlap with, with some of the members. Um, we do, um, uh, you know, we do litigation on behalf of the state, so whenever there's, for example, a contract dispute um, that the state's involved in, we would typically wind up at some point, if it's actually in litigation, we'd wind up helping get that resolved. Um, you know, one of the things that might not be as obvious, but particularly on the road construction uh, side of it, um, most of, there's almost always bond financing involved. Yeah. And uh, by law, most state bond issuances have to come through our office and be approved for form and legality by our bond council before they can uh, be issued out into the market. And so, uh, you know, we certainly have a role in that. And that wouldn't be just true for roads. It would be true for any public construction project that mm -hmm. was debt financed. So, you know, there are things we do that hopefully we just do them quietly, professionally, and don't get noticed, but they do have an, an effect on the marketplace uh, that your members would be interested in. You made the comment to me one time that the less your members hear about the job I'm doing, the better reflection it probably is on, on how well we're doing the job. We try. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's any day that we're not in the news, uh, it's a good day <laughs> at the office of the Attorney General. It means we're just doing our job, solid, professional, moving on. Yeah, and uh, I can assure you our members out there are hoping that there is a, a prodigious amount of, of bonds coming your way for approval for infrastructure <laughs> in the near future. A um, couple other things. Honestly, General, these are less questions and probably more thank yous, really, that I want our listeners to know about. Some of them, well, the first one is your support of our Emerging Leaders Program. Um, it's really kind of the crown jewel of ACEC. It's produced so many of our leaders um, who are still involved to this day and you've been incredibly gracious with your time coming to speak to that program trying to help folks understand how to be the best grassroots lobbyists that they can be um, so our ELP graduates certainly have some familiarity with you and some of the things you've done some of our other members not so much but your support of that program has been great um, as you know QBS qualifications based selection most folks assume infrastructure funding is probably our biggest issue, and honestly, I think um, retaining that procurement process actually may be the number mm -hmm. one issue. Uh, I know it's not something you've had to tackle regularly through the career, um, but you've been supportive of that over the years when called on. And I know in conversations, just philosophically and intellectually, you have an understanding of that. Of course, you procure professional services. You, re, you retain folks. Yeah. I mean, I understand, you know, we one of the things we do here at the AG's office, we hire expert witnesses in litigation. We hire outside counsel for litigation. We do that with some frequency. And, uh, you know, we're a state entity. We're under the general procurement statutes. Um, but, you know, there are times you, you just don't want the lowest bidder because even though they may check the boxes on paper, they are not the best choice for the service that we need to be providing. And so I, I do understand, I think, that in some professional service areas, there just are other variables yeah. that have to be weighed if the goal is to obtain for the public the best possible service for the dollars spent. Yeah, and you know, the 
difference, and I know we're just preaching to the choir with each other here, but the difference between procuring services like a contractor where they get a set of plans that are that thick and lays everything out right down to the millimeters of asphalt and, and you know, the length of the guardrail and whatever versus hiring um, legal staff or professional design consultants where that um, scope of services uh, isn't and can't be and in, in many cases even shouldn't be as well defined, um, which is why you bring them in and have that conversation to find the best fit and the best value. But Absolutely. At any rate, we've always appreciated that. And then uh, I want our listeners out there to know back in your time in the Senate, uh, you have cast some tough votes in favor of infrastructure funding. Uh, Don't remind people of that. (laughs) Go dig them up. Come on, man. Come on. I hope your anti-tax listeners in Southeast Kansas missed this podcast and we don't dredge up any any old ghosts for you. But uh, those are tough votes. And and we never want our elected officials uh, to feel like that's been forgotten or not appreciated. And I think uh, in large part because of that vote and others like you, um, we do... Uh, and hopefully still have, or it's getting a little dicier now, but we have had infrastructure that serves the public well and to be very proud of, um, thanks to some of those forward-thinking votes. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I hope that's true. You know, it's always a balance. Mm -hmm. It's always a balance. But, um, you know, long-term investment in infrastructure is good for this state. And uh, it's always been my view. I haven't always agreed with the way to do it, but I've always thought it needed to be done, and we've gotten a lot of it done. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, we're getting close to wrapping up here. Uh, we always like to end with, we call it the lightning round. It's just a handful of random questions to help the listeners know more about you. It'll be like a day in the life at the Attorney General's <laughs> office. That's great. <laughs> Talk about random. You never know what's coming across his desk. I bet that's probably right. Uh, <laughs> so just some random things here. Uh, you are a, not only a child of Southeast Kansas, but I know a very, very proud child of southeast kansas favorite place to eat when you get to go back home oh my gosh uh you know i have a brand new one um there's a new seafood joint of all things in independence i believe it's called sam's it's a louisiana chain really that for reasons of personal connection has opened a branch in independence america and uh, it's pretty good fried seafood. So That's awesome. Check it out. It's on the east side of town. Challenge accepted. Yeah. Yeah, very good. I may actually be down there here in the next couple of months, so duly noted. <laughs> um, one more policy-related. Most influential public servants uh, of our lifetime. We're You and I are roughly the same age. Um, when you think of people during our lifetime, who do you think of as as being impactful, and whether that's public policy, social change, business growth, and job creation? Um, and you don't have to pick just one. If you've yeah. got two or three or four or five, feel free to rattle them off. Sure. You know, I, I'd have to put Ronald Reagan on the list uh, probably pretty high. Uh, I recognize in part that's because those were formative years for me. But, uh, you know, even looking back, I hope with uh, a colder historian's eye, I mean, Reagan's great contribution was he taught the country how to believe in itself again mm-hmm. and we could probably use a little more of that uh, these days so I, I'd put him right at the top of the list I think um, I, you know maybe not in a historical history book sense but I would put Bill Graves on that list mm-hmm. and I recognize not everybody would uh, but I, I think Bill's um, 
demeanor on approaching the task of governing was admirable. Um, whether he agreed or disagreed with his policy choices or priorities, at the end of the day, he viewed the task of governing as a noble task that required level-headed executive leadership, and it was rarely about ideological purpose, driven by philosophy, of course, but not about ideological purpose, but about making the machinery work uh, the way it was designed. So I, I would list both of them, obviously in very different ways. Sure. Um, as being on my list. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, I have one and only one um, person of any kind, let alone elected official, on the wall in my office, and it's President Reagan. Is that right? Yeah, I've got a real nice Jill bought me a, well, I think it's wonderful, um, hand-sketched drawing of President Reagan in a nice mm -hmm. frame, and yep, I look at it every day. I Fantastic. I think that's a great answer. Well, let's wrap up our podcast with this. Um, I've mentioned a couple times you're a proud child of Southeast Kansas, but uh, that's maybe not the most fair characteristic. I would really classify you as just a proud Kansan, period. Uh, I hope you, so. Yeah, I believe that. I think so, too. Uh, I share that sentiment. You know, we've had the chance to talk about that some over the years a few times. Um, best hidden gem in Kansas, and let me offer a couple of qualifiers, if I may. Not just to people from outside Kansas, but potentially native Kansans as well. And I think your answer, it could be anything from a community to a specific place to a natural occurrence, something in nature. And again, if you don't have one, you want to list two or three or four, by all means, feel free. But something that the average Tom, Dick, and Harry might not know about. Yeah. Best hidden gem, boy, that's a loaded uh, question. So I'll I'll leave the best aside. But you know, a hidden a couple of hidden gems mm -hmm. maybe that folks don't think about. Uh, Penny's Diner in Sharon Springs. Uh, it is a twenty four seven diner in the little town of Sharon Springs in Wallace County. If you're driving west on I seventy for whatever reason, and you're gonna be at an odd time hungry, and you got an extra thirty minutes to drop down from Goodland, do it. Uh, it, there are three places in Kansas that something like Penny's exist. Uh, it's, there's one in Sharon Springs. There's one up in Marysville. There's one down in Wellington. There is a motel next to each of those 24-7 diners. They're like the old silver metal diners, you know. Yeah. And the reason they exist is that those three locations are places where the trains, I think mostly the coal trains coming out of Wyoming, have to stop and change uh, crews because of the work hour requirements. Obviously, those are not heavily populated areas. Right. And so the railroads actually have invested in a 24-7 diner and a motel so they can pre-position a fresh crew there and they have a place to take their off crew and they don't have much downtime on the train, even if it's coming through at 1.30 in the morning. So you can get great 1950s era burgers or whatever 24 hours a day in Sharon Springs, America. That's, now, that's awesome. a hidden story. And Marysville. And, and Marysville and Wellington. Or Wellington, excuse yep. me. Wellington, yep. Uh, yep. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah, the sheriff uh, out in Wallace County took me there. He, I was going to meet him for lunch one time. He said, well, meet me at Penny's. And I'm like, what the heck is he talking about? I don't know about a diner. And right there it is. And it's... It's probably, a lot of fun. Probably thought he meant J.C. Penney's. <laughs> of course, maybe not in Sharon Springs. J.C. Yeah. Penney's, yeah. How funny. What a great answer. Yeah, that's awesome. But uh, I will be, I don't know, the next time I'll be by Sharon Springs, but I get up to Marysville way every once in a while. I'll have to check that out, too. Last election, uh, Wallace County, Sharon Springs, was my best performance. I got 94% of the vote. 
in the general election, so you can tell I go to Penny's a lot. <laughs> I think I would, too, with that kind of support. Well, General, I can't thank you enough for making time to come by and visit with us. It's been a lot of fun. Um, thanks for all that you've done for our members of ACC Kansas over the year, and uh, thanks for making time to join us on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Scott. Very good. Listeners, I uh, hope you've enjoyed this. Stay tuned for the next edition of the QBS Express. Mm-hmm.